Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'm Alicia Aiken-Radburn and we're talking to women in Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. Senator Sarah Hanson-Young was elected as Senator for South Australia at the 2008 federal election representing the Australian Greens. She is the youngest woman to be elected to federal parliament, winning election at the age of 25 and taking office at the age of 26. In her maiden speech back in 2008, she shared that as a kid, there seemed to be very little to believe in when it came to politicians and their parties. Most of it seemed much like what she witnessed in the schoolyard, games and tricks played amongst those who sought power and privilege. So even though aspects of representing her community appealed to her, Senator Hanson Young never wanted to become what she saw as a stereotypical politician. She aspired to do and be something quite different to that. And 13 years on from her election, I think it is safe to say she has achieved her goal. Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Senator. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I was going to start with, it is coming up to lunchtime there in Adelaide. What's your day look like today, the day in the life of a Senator? Uh, Well, um, this week, is uh you know just we've just finished up a really busy period in the parliament so this week is about kind of mopping up all the bits and pieces that we didn't get to uh while parliament was sitting um so i'm <laughs> i'm in the middle of uh responding to uh media requests around government announcements uh i have responsibility for arts and tourism and of course um, there are two big se- sectors that have been hit because of um, COVID and the you know, the lockdowns that we have. Every time there's an outbreak, it impacts on those industries. So I'm doing quite a bit in response to that. Um, the day started actually this morning. I did um, Ticker TV. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah, but, I have. It's, um, it's like a little. It's like an online online news news channel yeah they're really cool actually they're you know a startup out of melbourne um and uh you know i've 
always been quite supportive of them, but I've, I've got a regular spot there on a Thursday. So when I'm back here in Adelaide and we're half an hour behind, that's a 7.40 start, um, of which I, I knock on my daughter's door and say, don't come down uh, in your pyjamas quite yet because uh, you'll be that <laughs> we're like, going live in the lounge room. You know that classic Zoom thing where like the guy's daughter like waddles in, that's what it would be like, and he's like. Exactly. <laughs> so she just, uh, anyway, she just rolls her eyes and, and um, puts up with it. But, uh, yeah, so then doing that, getting her off to school, which is nice when I'm home to be able to um, to do the, the drop off to school. I love the drive. Um to school with her I just it's an opportunity to kind of reconnect over things and talk about stuff so that's been nice and then yeah just straight back into it okay I want to take you to what initially got you involved in politics I get a lot of messages from young women who you know they know that I've worked as a staffer and they are like, how how do you actually, what are those first steps? What was your path to joining the Greens? Take me back to the University of Adelaide. I'm a big student unionist and I love that you were the president of your student union. What was that time like for you? Well, it was extraordinary, actually. It was a really amazing time to be a student activist. Um, but, you know, it was, it was, during the John Howard government, so there'd been a lot of cuts to education uh, and particularly to university education. So there was kind of a, a lot of feeling uh, on the university campus that um, it was becoming more and more uh, expensive to do a degree. It was right at that cr- that, that crunch point when um, you know rental prices were getting more expensive and there was a huge pressure on university students really for the first time that perhaps you needed to work more hours uh, to be able to cover your rent than uh, than you spent studying. And that was a really interesting balance to try and um, represent people's views in the midst of all of that. Um, but also, you know, finish my own degree and, and, and do uh, that advocacy. I was quite passionate about human rights and um, and social justice uh, and the environment. I've always been very passionate about those issues. So uh, we obviously worked a lot on those things as well. Um, one of the things that was most um, engaging for me was that at the time we had uh, the Woomera and the Baxter Detention Centres um, in South Australia and there were all these refugees and their families that had been locked up in detention just four or five hours out of Adelaide. That I found that just horrifying that there were people my age, uh, younger children, locked in this detention centre um, for no other reason than they'd fled uh, the war in Afghanistan um, and, um, and Iraq, many of them, at the time. So... I organised a lot on campus for support to them. We organised trips up to the Baxter and the Woomera Detention Centre and we'd go and visit them. And that really was a kind of um, an introduction to me about how uh, real politics works, that, you know, you can have such a strong community campaign, uh, but unless you can change people's minds in the parliament... Um, it it kind of gets ignored. And so I started lobbying politicians and getting directly involved in um, 
you know, uh, pressuring members of parliament to do the right thing. What was the link there? So what was, you know, clearly you've always been passionate about human rights, refugees in particular, the environment. What what was the tra- what was that moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to translate this passion into joining a parliamentary party and it's going to be the Greens because I think it's so interesting because I did a very similar thing. I identified what I was passionate about led me to the Labor Party, but I love hearing people's stories about what led them to actually fill out that membership form. Well, for me, it was um, it was two thousand and one, uh, and we call it was the, we call it the Tampa election. It was when uh, John Howard stopped this boat uh, that was holding um, uh, over three hundred um, refugee families and children on board, and stopped them at sea, and basically said they couldn't land in Australia. And I was just horrified that there were people who innocent people who were being used as political pawns and the first person and the loudest person I saw standing up and saying this is not right was Bob Brown he was the former leader of the Greens and I remember that moment so clearly where I went from just being concerned in the community and maybe going to a few rallies to then saying hang on a minute I need to get involved here and um, the next day I rang the local Greens office and asked whether I could hand out on election day. And um, the rest is history. <laughs> I think a lot of people have a similar story. And I'd say to anyone listening how to get involved, ring your local member, connect with someone that you identify with and get involved physically, I go into the office. I think that's so important. And, you know, I joined the Greens because... Uh, it fits my values. Um, I, I I wanted to be uh, part of a, a a movement. I wanted to be. Um, I, I, I really care about climate change and the environment and human rights and uh, equality. And so it kind of ticked all those boxes for me. Um, but there's nothing more than I love about meeting young people and young women in particular, who, regardless of what side of the political spectrum they they fit want to get involved because <laughs> we are so lucky in Australia that we have such a um, open uh, democracy. We shouldn't be taking this for granted. We should be getting involved. And there are some really big issues right now facing uh, the community and broader society, whether it's the environment, whether it's uh, inequality, um, this is the moment to get involved and to have your voice heard. And there's nothing more motivating than actually you know, participating in a campaign. So, yeah, uh, you know, whatever whatever colour flag you wear, yeah. um, <laughs> ring up your local member and get involved. It's just, it, it is, it, it really can uh, lead uh, to lots of other things as well. It can open your mind up as to how you the rest of your life, how you engage in your work, um, getting involved with a political party and um, using that uh, to kind of, you know, put your values into practice, I think is, is one of the most precious things about our democracy. The next direction I usually head in is parliament, uh, but I just 
bridging off that, I do want to ask you, because I feel like you would have just such an intimate knowledge of it, when you talk about joining a movement, from the parliamentary perspective, and let me know if this isn't your experience, but I I do think that it's quite hard in a parliamentary party at times because, you know, we're all individual. We don't, even though we're a part of a collective, we don't think in necessarily a fully homogenous way. How do you deal with when potentially you have to compromise or make concessions to be a part of a broader collective? Like, would you say that you've agreed with absolutely every single policy decision of the the Greens as a collective? How have you dealt Um, with that? That's a a really good question. Um, One of the advantages, of course, of joining a party that... um, closely aligns with you uh, is that and your values is that you're less likely to come up against conflict but of course there's uh, moments where we uh, you know we can be having a discussion in the party room and I think oh what I think we should be doing this and other people think we should be doing that Um, we have a consensus decision making in the green so it forces us to um, talk through those issues <laughs> it forces us to talk through those issues, and it means actually every discussion tends to be a compromise uh, internally, and then we um, and then we go out and you know and advocate for that. I'm quite proud though that the Greens still do have a conscience vote. So if there was something that I uh, am uh, fundamentally uh, supportive of that other people weren't, or you know, or vice versa. Um, I can exercise a conscience vote. And I, that, that's really important to me. That was an important factor of uh, con- considering how I go into politics. Um, but look, Alicia, I'm a, I'm a really big believer of diversity of views and uh, I'm in the Greens because it fits my values. But I know that the Greens don't have all the answers all of the time. No political party does. And um, and no individual MP does, and we have to work on our strengths and uh, and, and and work with others to to achieve things. Um, you know, if you care about the environment and you care about uh, social justice, then the Greens is the party. Um, if there's other issues that are that um, are higher up that priority list, then you'd go go with them. But you know, I'm. What I don't like is when one party has total control. That's what I think is dangerous in a in in uh, a political setting. Or I'm living in, the in Perth. <laughs> I'm living in Perth, <laughs> where we basically got. Like... I know. See, this is a really interesting phenomenon, right? Yeah. What's happened in the WA election? There's now total control. I don't think that's. Hey, you're democracy. running Zach Kirkup's lines for him. I just don't. I, I yeah. think you need a diversity of voices, and I think it forces um, all of us to consider um, all of the alternatives and consider whether uh, is this the right solution? Um, how can it be tweaked? Whether you're debating those issues inside a party room or inside a parliament. Um, I really think that's the best way um, we need. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big supporter of independence uh, in the in the parliament for that reason. In certain at certain times in certain spots, um, having somebody stand up and go, you know what? Actually, I stand for this. Uh, it forces the rest of us to think about how we deal with that. 
taking you to Parliament. You've been there for a while now, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, those passions, like the, the, the things that burnt just like in the pit of your stomach that you just really, those things that made, made you so determined to make change, how has that translated for you into parliamentary life? And what are the things, like are there a couple of things that you, when you look at your sort of collective experience in parliament, you go, one, two, three, those are the things that I'm just like, I can leave my political career and be so proud of. Yeah. Look, there's there's been lots of moments where I've um, thought afterwards, usually at the, in the midst of it, it's so, it's chaos yeah. and uh, you, <laughs> you're just holding on as you kind of get through the day um, or the parliamentary week. But there's so, been so many moments when you look back and I think, oh, wow, that was a pretty, that was pretty incredible to be a part of. Um, obviously, watching the, um, uh, the ebbs and flows of the climate debate has been an amazing thing to be a part of. And I, you know, I, I'm frustrated we are still not um, at the, where we should be. And so while I'm very proud of um, being part of pushing that along and being a strong voice for the environment and for the future of the planet, uh, there is still a long uh, way to go. Um, one of the the things that I um, did early on in my term was I really pushed for a uh, national children's commissioner, someone who would be able to give a voice to children and young people. And at the time, people thought this was just like, you know, kind of out there, you know, not not particularly relevant, not a priority. And um, actually now we have one and it's essential. It's, uh, it, it's a it's um, a position that's feeding into national debates all the time, whether it's how children are respected in the family law courts or uh, in the education system, Uh, you know, a a strong uh, role for ensuring that young people are listened to when we look at uh, politicians are always making decisions and government decisions all the time uh, about the future. And I really wanted young people to be able to have a strong voice in that. So that's that, that's something from um, early on that I can say, look back and go, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. I did that. Um, but really being a strong voice for women in the parliament would have to be um, something that I didn't really uh, know, I didn't set out to do, and yet um, it has just it's become quite clear to me that there is a um, there is such a, a responsibility on my shoulders and on the shoulders of others to to be a strong voice for women um, in the parliament and on the on the political stage. And um, I'm a, I, I've been a single mum for most of my time in politics, and um, it's one of the proudest moments is being able to you know look back now and go. Uh, you know, Cora and I, you know, my daughter and I did this as a team and um, and we've picked a lot of goals along the way. Uh, daughter of a single mum over here. So I can just say I just think it's one of the most spectacular things about you and you're like Cora is just going to grow up and day by day she will recognise more and more what a rock star you are. Like I know that she probably does already, but standing here at 28, knowing 
the um, how much my mum invested in me and wanted to make my life better than hers. It's just she's going to be so proud well, to have. I must say one of the most proudest moments I think was the other day when uh, I was in Canberra, Parliament was sitting, the women's marches were happening and I got sent a photo from Cora she had gone to the Women's March here in Adelaide and taken her boyfriend. Yes. And I just thought, ah, oh, this, is, this, this is so good. Like, change is happening before our very eyes. Young people are just insane to me. Like on, I, I got absolute tingles standing at the climate strikes. I, I like scro- spent hours scrolling on TikTok and just the way that conversation has shifted and... I can't. I actually can't wait to be a mum and to look at my kids and have them say things to me, and for me to be like, "Whoa, you are like so much more progressive than me." Like your views, your views are challenging mine because I think that's the way it should go. So that's just so. I was going to use the word groovy, which is weird, but <laughs> it's very good. Cool. Who am I? I'm like a boomer already, twenty eight years old. Um, yeah. I think that's a really I think that's a really good point. They young people are challenging us and um yeah, the conversations I have with my daughter about how she sees the world and how she um you know, they are living and breathing um in a in a time that is is, is so full of controversy. Uh, the the climate debate and the climate crisis they really feel that as young people and um, and they have every right to be demanding that we all do better as adults um, but then also looking at those issues of inequality and how they and how you deal with tolerance and compassion and empathy um, I'd have to say this there I, I don't I don't think I've ever met a group of people um, than my daughter's uh, friends. And her, who are more empathetic uh, in the world, actually. Oh, I agree. Like my fourteen-year-old cousin shares stuff to her Instagram story, like Trans Day of Visibility, and I'm like, just, I'm just wowed because you know I considered myself quite empathetic. I felt the feelings of people growing up. Really, you know, I, I imagine you would be the same. It's what led you to Parliament, but I, I didn't have as much I wasn't as clued in as the younger generation is it took me up until sort of like year 12 to really get across the issues I want to take you to what you said about becoming a voice for women in a two in a 2018 Marie Claire article you spoke about the importance of speaking up and I was reading it and I guess my response was I consider myself to be pretty like I'm, I'm, I like to think I'm pretty articulate. I can advocate for myself, but I find it hard. I find it um, in a work setting, at, in 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 friendship group settings, wherever you are. I find it really hard to. I might have something that's sort of like bubbling just at the top, and I want to express or I want to advocate for myself, but I do have a fear of rocking the boat. And I wonder how, practically speaking, like if you have any tips and tricks to push past that. Like I had a situation at work the other day where, you know, I I probably wanted to be a little bit more firm in expressing what I believed in, but I I guess I feared, I feared 
what would they think of me? Am I being too radical? Will Is this rocking the boat? What implications would this have for me moving forward? Look, I think um, I think all those things are, are really natural to feel and <laughs> I still feel all of them from, you know, a, at a variety of times. Um, but I think one of the most important things is knowing in in yourself where your line is and um that doesn't mean that that line doesn't change by the way but at that point in time where is your line what is acceptable what isn't um and then once you've kind of you're clear you're clear or you're honest with yourself about that um you've got to you can't pick every fight. Yeah. So you know, don't don't feel like if if you're at work or uh, in a you know social situation that to call it out, you have to be picking a <laughs> picking a fight with everyone. Exhausting. Over everything. It's exhausting, <laughs> exhausting. and it's, but it's puts also it back on you as well because yes. it makes you like. That's what I think about when I see you advocate. I'm like, oh god, like sometimes do you just not want to like drink a whole bottle of wine and be like. <laughs> I'm sure you do. (laughs) There are certainly days where I feel like that. Um, But, uh, you know, yeah, you can't pick every fight. But that's why I think it's important to to be clear and honest with yourself about where your line is because um, you you do stand up for the issues that matter. And if um, if if you walk away from a situation feeling like, oh, I really wished I'd done something about that. Actually, that's not too late either. You know, just think about how you would deal with that next time round or turn back around or, you know, or the next time you see that person say, hey, you know, that thing you said to me the other day or what you said to somebody else the other day, that wasn't cool. Uh, And, you know, that I think you should apologise for that. I'm a big believer in giving people space to change and to accept that their um, perhaps their perspective or that their behavior um, uh, was wrong I'm you know one of the one of the parts of showing vulnerability of how you feel or how something how somebody acts or behaves towards you and the impact that that has is if you're prepared to show some vulnerability, um, it does allow people to, in return, show some vulnerability and go, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I hadn't worked out. I hadn't clicked that that didn't, that wasn't great, that this was making you feel like this. You know, that's on very much on the low level. Um, the problem we have when uh, in relation to kind of systematic sexism yes. or the bullying next big one. <laughs> <laughs> you know it kind of when it gets up to that level um you really do have to hold people accountable and you can only do that if um if we've got if, if you're prepared to be vulnerable enough to stand up and say no um so you know I think both in an individual uh, as an individual engagement um give yourself a bit of a break. You don't have to stand up to everything. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to pick a fight on everything. Think about the things that really matter to you. Um, but on a systematic level, um, when you can see that a behavior continues to carry on because it's not held to account, 
that's when I think we both, we all need to use our collective voice in standing up. Um, but I also, yeah, I've got to be honest that some people are not going to be able to do that. Well, and I think it opens not everybody's the door in the same. Like when you do show that vulnerability, you offer them the opportunity to be vulnerable back and be like, hey, I messed up or I've reflected on my actions. I sort of, like, I get it. Or I don't get it. Please help me understand it more by opening that door to them if they don't choose to walk through it. Then you end up, then you can easily identify maybe they're just a, <laughs> I could say many words. A moron. Yeah. Maybe they're just a moron. I, it, it, look, Exactly. And I think um, I think some people are. Some people are just, you know, not very nice people. Some people are, um, you know, they're, you know, men who have misogynistic views um, and are kind of, you know, proud of that will, you know, I, what, they need to be held to account. Um, but if you're not sure where somebody sits in that spectrum yet, um, I think, uh, being a bit vulnerable and saying, look, this I didn't like this, this wasn't right, um, uh, allows it to be a little less confrontational as well, which is important. Let's go to the hard thing, the structural change, the systematic change. Um, parliamentary culture, it's been the big debate over the last few months. Um, it has been harrowing, as I imagine it has been for the women in your office, um, female staff, as I know, from across the political spectrum. And I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, we might have seen the bulk of sort of allegations, articles focused on the coalition, but I think that you would probably share this perspective with me. It happens everywhere. It's pervasive across all parties and in society as well. What do you think, uh, how do we, like, is it a matter of just, applying continual pressure but it th that's hard because it feels very reliant on women coming forward with another story and they and there are so many stories out there but it requires the labor of women to keep disclosing and that's hard so what what are the yeah. steps that look, we are taking <laughs> you know I, look i think that it, it is hard and the reason why what has happened out of Parliament these last you know couple of months in particular with Brittany Higgins's um, harrowing story with uh, stories from um, other staff within Parliament House is that oh my god if you if we can't get this right in Parliament then how on earth is a woman who works behind a bar at the pub or yeah. Uh, in a retail outlet somewhere, or on the factory floor, or is it, or in a, uh, you know, in an office in an accounting firm, you know, or you know, a teacher? How are these women um, going to ever stand up and say um, this is what's been going on to me? Um, and I think the story from Brittany Higgins, her, the rawness of of her vulnerability in telling her story allowed so many of us to see our own experiences in hers. And that is why it's touched people so deeply because if we're 
as women, if we're honest about how we've experiences throughout our lives, and um, we all know someone or have experienced um, things that's, that ring true from what she has said. And so it is up to the, it, it, it is now up to us, to those of us in politics, um, to show how we're going to fix this because um, the whole country is looking on now. And if we don't fix it uh, in Parliament, uh, it sends a terrible message to not just um, women, other women that their stories are not worth telling, won't be taken seriously, uh, they may as well stay quiet, but it also sends a really bad message to uh, perpetrators that they can continue to get away with this stuff when in fact they can't, uh, they, they, they should not be able to. We do need to see, see that change. Um, and you say it takes a, it's, it's a labour of effort and from women to come forward to bear their experiences, to um, put themselves out there. Um, yes, that is true. However, because the experience, because it's our experiences universal. are so collective mm. and so common, that actually all we need to do is support each other and keep talking about it and demanding change and demanding action. I don't think um, it has to be that you know, there's the, this, Who's next? Who's yeah, next? Who's yeah, next? Yeah. Do we need any more terrible story to explain what needs to happen? What is wrong and what one. needs fixing? We should just need one. We um, shouldn't even and need we shouldn't one. have even had that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. Okay. So I feel I, I really do obviously if there is um women out there who want to come forward with their story and to tell it, then they need to be supported. And you know, I'm I feel a huge sense of responsibility to make sure that we create a space for people to come forward and tell their story where they are supported and are not just going to be left there standing on their own. I, that is that is the last thing um, uh, those of us who, who are in a privileged position um, should, should allow to happen. Taking um, you to the practical steps that have sort of come out of this, come out of like, you know, being a reaction to the Women's March, um, what what do you think of the – obviously, like, I'm so happy and proud to have you as a voice in Parliament to keep the government to account to what they say they will do, but what do you think of that Cabinet reshuffle? Like, what do you think of the Committee of Coalition Women? I'm – I am happy to see steps being taken, but do you think they are the right ones? Do you think that we could be doing anything else? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the women who have come forward and told their stories and called it out so far haven't done it in vain. There is change happening and it's happening. It is happening. Six months ago, we would not have been talking about an independent process uh, for staff to to go to. I mean, we haven't had a HR department in the parliament, and for you know political staffers. I mean, what? It's so nice. 
every other organization in the country um uh, particularly of you know a size of employing thousands of people have a hr department like let's get on and do it people um so change is happening um but it doesn't it's but it's not inevitable and i think the uh the prime minister's response to all of this has been just woeful um he just doesn't get it he just doesn't get it and i and i'm frustrated by that because there is an opportunity here for um him to show genuine leadership but the thing is i don't think he's a leader i think he likes to manage things delegate tick the box over there this person's job not my problem you fix it um he likes delegating he likes managing everybody else um but politics requires something different and at a time of national crisis and that is what this is we are in the midst of a reckoning there is a loud and growing voice amongst women and decent men right across the country who say enough is enough we're sick of seeing women and girls treated badly disrespected overlooked ignored humiliated assaulted people are sick of it and so it requires actual leadership uh, not just management and i think that's the problem the prime minister has so we can put in place some systems and that's good um but what we need is a cultural attitude change and you know when you're the leader of the country it starts at the top i've got a couple of last questions just while i have you can i take you to the treatment of coalition women and when i raise this it's from a variety of angles i recently i recently spoke to senator holly hughes and she raised this idea of um of the sisterhood not being there when coalition women speak about their experiences. And I have to say that, like, when I watched Nicole Flint speak about her experiences in Parliament, it was pretty jarring. And I do, I think, like, you know, from whatever side you're entering Parliament, there's always going to be an opposite side that's going to, particularly for women, uh, be really awful to you. I was wondering what you think about that treatment and then I've got one more. <laughs> Look, I I think part of the problem is that, um, and this is what happened with Brittany Higgins, it was managed like it was a scandal rather than a crime. It was managed as something that could impact on uh, the Liberal side of politics and therefore the government not on uh, the fact that this was uh, a young woman who was allegedly raped on the couch in a minister's office and a crime had been committed. Um, Not a young woman who needed assistance um, and help and care and empathy and compassion. Um, and And that's because the way politics works, and you're not gonna, we're not gonna change this overnight or perhaps ever, but 
it's that knowledge is power. And so any whiff of uh, something like this can be weaponized, can be used against you, can be. And so it in and of itself silences those who are already victims even further. And I think for I've I've spent hours in the chamber seeing women from the Liberal uh, and the coalition side of government um, ask questions about the coalition's problem with women. I mean, is that really helping? Are we really progressing the cause if we make it the women's problem, the, the women on that side of the parliament's problem? I don't think so. I, I feel I, it just continues actually the issue and vice versa. You know, when Labor were in government, we saw Liberal women standing up and, uh, you know, attacking members of the Labor Party who were women for badly behaved men in their party. I, this is not helpful. Um, I do think we, you know, uh, just because you're a woman in politics doesn't mean you get things right all the time. Absolutely not. But this, what we are experiencing is part of what is going on in the broader society. It's just that there, it, is, it is magnified in politics because it is all about a power imbalance and the abuse of power and there is nowhere where power is the currency more than anywhere else but parliament. Is the answer then to compartmentalise and treat issues separately? Because I also do think that there's this tension as a progressive woman where you watch members of the coalition enact tangible policy that's going to affect women negatively. I think we saw it in, I was really intrigued and challenged listening to um, Grace Tame was speaking to Kerry O'Brien and she was basically, she basically like went through the cabinet reshuffle and was like, this, like, okay, this is all well and good, but we still have to be careful because this woman enacted this, this woman enacted that against women. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Is it about just separating it and recognising that, okay, you can be enacting negative policy to affect women, but you can also be abused and targeted and subject to sexism in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the main point here is that if we want to change things, we're going to have to work across party lines to do it. The issues that women face in politics are not unique to any political party. And so we do have to find ways of working across party divides. I've been a big supporter of um, ensuring that we establish or trying to establish a, you know, a cross-party women's caucus to talk about those issues, at least in a policy sense, that have direct impact on women. Um, I do think uh, it's disappointing that uh, despite the Prime Minister appointing all these women uh, this week to his cabinet, um, we've already heard that they're not going to take a gender lens to the budget. Well, hang on a minute. What's the bloody point then? What is the bloody point? So I, I think uh, we need to be doing both, supporting women uh, across party lines to be in Parliament and to be effective but we also have to be able to have 
uh, upfront and frank conversations about the policies that are being enacted and are they simply reinforcing um, uh, those systemic problems for the broader society? I could seriously talk to you all day. <laughs> you are just a joy. Um, but I'll ask you one last question, and I imagine it's one that you've received many times. If you had one piece of advice, wisdom, encouragement for young women who are listening to this podcast, are watching the news and thinking, I can do that, what is your biggest piece of advice to them? Do it get involved. I just, oh, we need more women in politics at all levels, not just as the members of parliament, but we need more women as our advisors and our, and in our staff. We need more women lobbying on behalf of issues and causes. Um, we're only going to change this if we get to uh, that critical mass. Um, my advice in doing that is work out what it is that you really believe in. You've got to be true to yourself and that if you are being true to yourself, uh, then, um, you know, you can do, you, you can do it. Find out who to connect with. Don't be afraid of connecting with people who have different views to you. There's always um, something that you can find in common. And I, if there's one thing that, politics has taught me uh, from the first day that I arrived where I am now is that um, being open to have uh, conversations with people who might not agree with 100% of everything you say um, not just informs your own view better but you just never know where it will lead in terms of actually getting genuine outcomes. I love that. Um, where can we find you, Sarah? Can we follow you on Instagram? I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. But I'm um, no, hit me on Instagram. That'd be cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. And thank you for not retreating. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.aikenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> next question. <laughs> See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.